Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. <laughs> Not in a museum. <laughs> a place of learning and growth. So anyway, <laughs> this isn't wow. a podcast recording. This is a heist. We're all gonna steal that antelope thing. This is, of course, y'all remember the plan that we went over with Clooney and Hathaway. We're all in on it. Oceans 200 and, I don't know, 15. A lot so, more than we thought. A lot more than we thought. Oceans more than, oceans more than we planned. <laughs> Yeah, listen, the exfiltration strategy we had for the antelope will not work. <laughs> the, it's so much bigger than my truck, guys. I said we could get it in my truck, and we can't fit it in my truck. I'm sorry. <laughs> we didn't have a car to take the antelope home in. We took an Uber here, so there's no way yeah. that antelope's fitting We took in an it. Uber. There's Uber. There's Uber XL. There's Uber antelope. <laughs> It's perfect if you stole an antelope from a nice museum that lets you record a podcast there. What an amazing room to yeah. have our show in. I feel very this privileged. This is so cool. I could, I really, I'm so excited to be here. You know what, before this we get to, to is it, can everybody hear okay? I like to make sure everybody's good. Good. Sorry, some of you are standing. I would stand in solidarity, but you understand. <laughs> so, Sydney, we're here in beautiful... San Francisco, California. That's right. I'm part right. of the nightlife. Yeah. I wore got... my sticker because it said nightlife. <laughs> and that's probably like, nightlife sounds like, ooh, intriguing. And so I put it on because I was like, nobody's ever thought about me that way. Like, nightlife. Nightlife. Sydney. Nightlife. Here comes the party. <laughs> Look at her, nightlife. Uh, <laughs> usually when we go somewhere, when we, when we go on tour, we like to do a show. I feel like I say this every time. I need to mix it up. You say it. Okay. Um, say it different than I say it. Say it, it different than you say it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the road. Glad I don't say it that way. I know I'm doing it different. You said it, and I'm doing it different. You know, on the road, we uh, like to keep it thematic. Oh, ish. We like to keep it geographically appropriate. And so this is almost, see, this is confusing because this is where you'd seg into what the thing is, and I don't know what the thing is. So I'll take it over. Yeah, perfect. I, I, I warmed it up for you. Here, here's the rock. 
so I was looking into the, the medical history of the area, to something relevant to San Francisco. And usually on our show, if you listen to the show, you might know that I talk about things that we've done in medical history that were bad or not dumb. good. Yeah. <laughs> Just not great. Re I mean, racist. <laughs> and I found something that isn't isn't that. Hey. It's still it's still a great medical history story and I didn't know it and I'm hoping some of you don't know it and we can talk about it cuz it's a really fun great story and the the kind of the theme of it is that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. <laughs> Which is, which is something that, that obviously a lot of you and we here at Sawbones feel very strongly about. And so I wanted to tell this story because that, that kind of battle cry turns out probably started here and I didn't know that. So I wanna, I wanna talk about what is probably either the first or at least one of the first free clinics in the country. Do you know? <laughs> What? It's exciting. It's a, it's a really cool idea. A Did you want me to play jock jams with my mouth? Like, what do you want me to do? Dun 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 I saw the trailer for John Wick 3 today. I'm at maximum bumpitude. What? I need something a little more 60s. That's where we're going. We're going back to the 1960s. All the leaves are brown, my leaves are brown, and the sky is gray. Okay, there we go. The sky is gray. California dreamer on a winter's day. Uh huh. That was good. Are you good? I did a room appropriate remix for you. I blended it to Africa accidentally. Now. As you're probably aware, in the 1960s... All the leaves are brown. <laughs> Is it not like a cue? It's not like an every no, time. Okay, got no, it. I'm, I'm moving forward it. with the I'm show. Moving forward. We're going on. Got it. Uh, a lot of people were coming to San Francisco. If to... you're going mm -hmm. to San Francisco... You want the... one for every time you stop talking? No, or... no, no. This is going to get one. exhausting. Just like the one. Just the one. Just the one. Should have uh, talked about this before, huh? <laughs> if you wanted all these great music cues, I wish you'd give me a heads up. They, they were they were coming to take part in the in the kind of counterculture that had developed in the country, but was centered largely in the area, of course. And they were sharing everything. They were sharing their food, and they were sharing their space, and they were sharing their beds, and they were sharing their drugs, and everybody was sharing, and it was loving, and it was wonderful, and everybody was getting along pretty okay in the beginning. It was this revolutionary experiment, and a lot of people wanted to be in on it. And our story starts before the summer of love, not too far before, in January of 1967. In January, there was a concert in Golden Gate Park, the Human Bee-In. You get it? The Human Bee-In? Bee-In. Like okay. bee -in. Oh, all right. All right. Nice job. Just being there. It was a huge deal, right? This giant concert. And there was like 
Allen Ginsberg was there leading people in chants. Timothy Leary was there. There were all kinds of bands, The Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and Jefferson Airplane, this giant concert. And everybody was singing and dancing and chanting and, you know, beads and face paint, the whole thing. Everything we, you know, you've seen. You all know. You know, documentaries. We can watch you them. You probably call it Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> I know you all. And a lot of the people there were doing drugs. And because of that, there was one participant who, he wasn't doing drugs, but he came because he knew a lot of humans would be. And that was... Is he a ro- Oh my God, is he a robot? No. <laughs> no, just An a doctor. Alien. <laughs> just a doctor. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dr. David Smith, who was a 28-year-old physician who came... That, can I stop you for a second? That does sound like a robot fake name, though. No, that's his real name. I, I am David <laughs> Smith. <laughs> I hear humans are doing drugs. <laughs> he came largely because at the time he was studying the effects of different substances on the behavior of rats. So he was working in the pharmacology department, the University of, of California, and he was injecting things like LSD and meth into mice and watching them to see, like, what happens. And he thought, you know what would be better? Let's see what happens in humans. And I bet there will be a bunch of humans that I can observe at this concert. So he came to the concert, and you have to imagine, like, everybody's all... I assumed all like, God, you know, beaded and long hair and like groovy and, and everything. And then he's like wandering around. I, I picture him in that blazer that you wear sometimes. That I wear? The brown corduroy one. Ah, uh, yes. The Professor Lactose Intolerant jacket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the I've one. heard of buzzkills before, but I don't. it's tough to be like, so on a scale of one to ten... <laughs> No, but How purple is your shirt? Go on. Mm, good. So good he's science. Wa- he's wandering around and he's he's watching people and he's observing them have their experiences. And on the whole, this event is notable for the fact that it went pretty well. People were okay. They they cleaned up their messes. There weren't any major fights. There was no big disturbance. There weren't, like, people being carted away in ambulances or anything like that. It went overall pretty well. And this went a a big way in kind of communicating this idea to the rest of the country, like, okay, these these people are serious. This isn't just, like, a bunch of kids who want to have fun. Like, this is a whole movement. This is a new way of life. And so what resulted from this is everybody in the city kind of knew after this, like, you know, I bet once school lets out this summer, a lot of people are coming to San Francisco. And, of course, they were right. So there were a lot of business owners and, and you know, concerned citizens in the town who came forward to the city council, and they created this thing called the Council for the Summer of Love. And they said, listen, we have to prepare because they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> and they're... They're not necessarily bringing money, (laughs) and they don't necessarily have a place to sleep or food or anything. It's the exact same meeting the Pizza Hut lunch buffet has every time I'm going (laughs) to come. 
He won't necessarily have money or a place to sleep, but he is coming. So make the special apple dessert pie, please, or else he'll burn this place to the ground. So, so they, they created this council to try to prepare. They even proposed to, to kind of law enforcement, like, we should go ahead and prepare Golden Gate State Park to, like, let them sleep in. Hey, we're in Golden Gate State Park, right? Sort of next to it. <laughs> in it. In it. Nice. So they were like, let them sleep here. <laughs> nice. Not like in the Africa room, but like out there. And the sheriff was like, no, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, if we just pretend they're not coming, surely they won't. Or they'll get bored or whatever. They'll get hungry. They'll go back home. Don't worry. It'll be fine. And Dr. Smith in particular was concerned. <laughs> If you're listening to this podcast later, that was probably the most confusing thing you've ever heard. I've almost certainly edited this out, but I think a, a jaguar growled at us. Is that a what cheetah? that is? I can't read the plaque. Yeah. Cheetah, cheetah, for sure. Okay. A cheetah, the big for cat sure. in the tree just growled at us. Cheetah. Sorry. We apologize. Jaguar. I had it right the first time, didn't I? It's a jaguar. Because the spots have discolorations in the middle. Oh, my gosh. If you're listening to this later, all the scientists in the museum just applauded me. They all said, oh, they're putting some sort of science crown onto me. I've become the king of science. It is his room, and I'm You may sorry. speak. <laughs> Continue with your, uh, how you say, podcasts. <laughs> so Dr. Smith was particularly concerned about the medical needs of all of these people who were coming. And he said, listen, I've spent a lot of time around some of these people doing drugs and like stuff can go wrong. People can have bad trips. They can get sick. They're going to be sleeping outside maybe. We need to be ready. We need a, a clinic. We need something in place to take care of all these people who are coming. And pretty much the, the city council was like, no, <laughs> no. We, if we build a clinic and make it seem like we want to take care of them, then they're going to want to come more. And we don't want that. So no. And he continued to insist, you know, I've been seeing this new population of, of patients who are using drugs. I've been seeing more and more of these bad reactions. I'm really concerned. And nobody was listening to him. And so that was when he first kind of stood up and said, listen, I'm serious. Uh, you know, we have to do something. And still nobody would listen. And then David Smith did something that changed his entire life and helped him uh, eventually uh, change the minds of everyone around him. He took some LSD. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> He, he had been working with it for a long time, right? He had access to it in his lab, and he had never done it before. He really he was kind of a straight-laced guy. Like, he saw this as like, and he'll, this, these are his own words, he saw this as like a laboratory experiment. He would go out and see people using drugs and observe them, and he wanted to spend his time kind of enshrined in academia, away from all of that. He had no interest in going out and, and trying this stuff and like, 
being among the people. He just wanted to see what happened and go back to his lab and kind of experiment. And then he took some LSD and he had this spiritual revelation. I've seen enough after school specials. I know what happens next. He jumped through a plate glass window, right? <laughs> it always gets you. You shouldn't take drugs in the second story of a building, folks. Not if you're an after school special because you're going to jump right through that window <laughs> the second the drugs hit your system. That's not what happened, thank goodness. Instead, what happened is after he, I guess, got, got back from his trip, he, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> was that the parlance? <laughs> you and I have done a lot of LSD. <laughs> We've had so many of those paper tab, paper tablets. Oh, it's in Bandersnatch. Yeah, like the little tablets of paper with it on it. They put it on there, on the little tabs of paper. Mm -hmm. Is that, that is it? Is it paper? <laughs> okay, got it. A lot of thumbs up. Oh, now all the drug people are giving me a crown too. A second drug crown. <laughs> So after his trip, he realized that this was about more than practicality. It was about more than logistics. It was about more than the ability to kind of scientifically study the effect of drugs in the wild. This was about the fact that people need care. And his job as a doctor, as a human, was to help provide that. And that was the first time when in the midst of a meeting, a public meeting with city health officials, he stood up and he said, listen, healthcare is a right, not a privilege. We have to do this. Now, come on. And this we, listen, you, we know how you feel, okay? You can't give her that easy line every time. <laughs> she can't just say something that gets you cheer. That stinks. It, well, it <laughs> What's mine? The crown thing? All right, I'll come back to it. All right, keep going. Keep working on it. And, th and this sounds like, now we say this, and like a lot of us say this over and over again. This is, like I said, it's kind of a battle cry, and it sounds like a cliche. This was a, this was a big idea to be voicing in public and demanding, and demanding that city officials and doctors listen to and respect at the time. There weren't a lot of free clinics. There, you know, other, where, other places in the world, they'd already figured out that if you take care of people and give them health care, it's a good idea. Your society is better off. Obviously, we still have not figured that out today here. So, but this was a revolutionary idea, and he was saying it out loud and demanding it. And this idea, of course, would eventually, you know, light the country on fire. Hopefully, we're still, we're still working on it. Anyway, he decided at this point, this is a moral imperative. This isn't just a good idea. So... He rented a former dentist's office. It was like 14 rooms on the second floor of a building uh, just off the Haight, and he called it the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. I mean, it was, this, it was a really tiny area to be starting this whole medical clinic, and he had like 150 bucks is what he rented it for. It was like him and some other medical students. They just pooled their money. They went in together, <laughs> and they said... Let's get, this, let's get this office, let's go, let's, let's start taking care of people. So they opened the clinic on June 7th, 1967, right at the beginning of the Summer of Love. And it was, it was mainly run by volunteers. They had some donations by some big money donors and then just people who wanted to help. And they also made use of, 
they, they looked to the local population of hippies and said, listen, nobody's gonna come here unless it looks like a safe place. So we kinda need you guys to make it look okay. So they had tons of volunteers who were really there just to like welcome you in the door and give you flowers and <laughs> take you to a seat and talk to you. And they had the whole place like painted in psychedelic colors. Like the rooms were all different neon shades. They had like black light posters everywhere. They had lava lamps in the rooms. I mean, it was a very cool, groovy clinic. And they thought, okay, Maybe a few people will come in. Maybe we'll help a, a few people who are, you know, having some bad trips. That was their first idea. Like, this is mainly going to be utilized by, you know, people who have come out to San Francisco. They've probably not really experimented with drugs a lot. They're going to try drugs. They're going to be really freaked out. And they're going to come here, and we're just going to calm them down. We have some quiet rooms. We'll show them some lava lamps. <laughs> we'll talk to them very soothingly. They'll come down, and then we'll return them to their family and friends and everything will be cool. We have some sedatives. If things go really bad, we have those on hand, but that'll be the main function. They were wrong. The clinic saw 250 people in that first day, which as a, as a primary care doctor, 250 people, <laughs> that's a lot of people. And they were seeing everything. It wasn't just patients who, you know, were using acid for the first time and having a bad trip. They were seeing bronchitis. They were seeing food poisoning. They were, they had a couple bikers who came in who had some bad burns, like they got in a, in a bad wreck and they had some burns on their legs they had to tend to. They saw uh, malnutrition, people who had been living outside and hadn't had food for a while. They saw everything. They were not prepared for how wide ranging their services were gonna be. And it became clear this clinic was, was really gonna change the health of the whole population and this was just the beginning. So on that day, like I said, they saw 250 people. They did see up to, and this is, this is an amazing statistic, up to 12 people an hour that they were just helping come down from like LSD which is amazing, like the thought that they, and these were mainly volunteers, just in rooms, just talking to people, non-judgmental, just working through it with them. Just like, it's cool, you're fine, you're safe, we're not judging you, we're not gonna call the cops. Their only rules in the clinic were, it was pretty straightforward, like don't bring drugs, <laughs> don't do drugs in the clinic. <laughs> we know you did them out there, don't do them in here, because the cops come in, and the cops did. The cops raided the place constantly. Because they figured, like, we're going to find a lot of drugs here. But that was the only rule. Don't bring your drugs in here. Don't do your drugs in here. And so nobody did. Nobody was selling drugs. Nobody was doing drugs in the clinic. And so they stayed kind of out of the way of the law. Um, but they were constantly getting raided by the police. And, and the people who were coming in were really stressed about that and, and freaked out. But it, it was never a problem. So they worked with all these people. And over the course of the summer of love, the clinic would treat 12,000 patients which is a wild number of people in a summer. And these were people that like... It, to give you some comparison, if you're listening to this later, that's probably about how many people are in this room. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear, I mean, <clears throat> that's 12,000 people just going nuts for their favorite uh, show. <laughs> you're not very good at estimating... Around 12,000 people. Numbers. Sydney. It's an audio medium, Sydney. <laughs> So what was great is that 
this this really like created all this trust in the in the local community between the doctors and the nurses and the psychologists and the counselors and the social workers and everybody who was volunteering at this clinic and the community, which is a really important thing because then it kind of gave them a heads up as new substances crept into the area, which was really important as meth became a bigger issue within the community. And so they kind of already had a heads up as they started to see people coming in with some meth-related illnesses. And the other thing with that is that people were injecting meth, and so you started to see like more and more cases of infectious hepatitis because people were sharing needles and all that kind of stuff. And so it really gave, you know, David Smith and his crew, by being non-judgmental, by being open, by saying, we're not here to turn you in, we're not here to tell you what's wrong, we're just here to help you, really gave them, them the ability to reach a whole new population of patients who were being exposed to all kinds of stuff and were afraid to seek care in traditional environments where, I mean, let's face it, in the ER, you might have a cop standing there the whole time that you're getting checked out. And so if, you're, if you come in and you're on drugs, that's, you know, you, you might not want to go in there. That might be kind of a freaky environment. And so it was a really big movement in this area of the country at this moment in time. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the 
easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So they got really close in particular. Uh, Dr. Smith formed a friendship with another doctor, so to speak. Not really a doctor, but he was known by the name Dr. Zoom. Yes. <laughs> and this was really important because Dr. Zoom yeah, was... Yeah, I know why it's really important. The name's <laughs> Dr. Zoom. You can drink a little water if you need to, Sid. I'm going to talk about Dr. Zoom for a second. What do you know about Dr. Zoom? <laughs> I don't know anything about Dr. Zoom except it's the best person you've ever brought up on this show before. And I'm so excited to learn so much more about Dr. Zoom. Now I'm angry about the water because you're keeping me from Zoom. <laughs> so, as I said, people had started out using a lot of psychedelics and marijuana, and then they were starting to use more meth. Dr. Zoom was, <laughs> as, as I, <laughs> I found him described in one article, a world-class meth addict. <laughs> this is, these are not my words. <laughs> That's not funny. I'm sorry. He had a, he always had a syringe like pinned to his jacket. That was like his thing. <laughs> like to tell everybody like, I'm a world-class meth addict. Don't even act like I don't do meth. <laughs> and he was really famous in the community already. And he initially wasn't going and seeking any medical care, but, but this clinic got such a good reputation that he finally went there when he was sick and in need Just of Just as help. a fellow physician to try to... <laughs> Well, he kind of became a consultant of sorts because he knew all the ins and outs of meth and who was using it and what was, what, who was using what and where it was coming from. And he had the in and all of the, you're going to go all over this name, what was called the Crystal Palaces. Like, not the place at Disney World. Oh, okay. But, but like, places where people did meth. It's Crystal Palace. Oh, okay, got you it. Get it. Is that so, why they called it that? Because of the Disney World? <laughs> I mean, is that why Disney World called it that? Because that's where I, all the characters go to do meth? I cannot imagine that they... That's where they have the friendship breakfast, right? Yeah. You, you all are Disneyland people. I don't know if you have the Crystal Palace here, but... They, like, Winnie the Pooh is there. Winnie the Pooh does meth, is what you're saying. No! Wow. No. Learning a lot on this Sawbones. No, but I was, when I read this, and I read this in multiple places, and I was like, so were these just like regularly known as Crystal Palaces? Why did Disney World call that restaurant with Winnie the Pooh Crystal Palace? <laughs> that seems like a weird name now. But this, this gave Dr. Smith access. He would actually like go to these places. Dr. Zoom would call him <laughs> and be like, listen, we've got somebody sick. Greetings and salutations. <laughs> Tis I, Dr. Zoom. Some more scallywags, you're doing all my meth. 
But this was They have to solve 13 puzzles <laughs> to unlock the last chamber of meth that I've prepared for them. But you can come and treat them if you like. One physician to the next. Anyway, gotta go. I'm gonna fight Batman. <laughs> World class. World class. But these were like house calls. They were Crystal Palace calls. He would go to these Crystal Palaces and like doctors weren't allowed in there. You weren't allowed in there unless you had a password. And here we have this like, I, like I like to envision this like tweety nerdy doctor like, hello, <laughs> I'm here to check somebody out. And like they would let him in and help people out, which was, which was great. He had these contacts and he was that trusted. Now it got to a point he was kind of taking care of a lot of people who were, who were, and he was very clear on his opinions on drugs. And these are, at the time, I, I think they've changed now, but his opinions on drugs at the time were pretty clear. Meth is bad. Marijuana's fine. Psychedelics, as long as you're using them in the right place, can be fine. Um, but meth, he was pretty clear on nobody should be using. And this started And you to, think this has changed over time? No, I'm, I mean... I don't know his personal opinions. I, you know now. what, Meth? I judge you too quickly. It's going fine. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say what his opinions now are on. Probably anything, still. But at the time, down on meth. There was a division between all the different substances, and this started to gain the attention of the community of meth dealers. In particular, one one like the the big wig of the meth dealers, Papa Al, and Papa Al <laughs> was very upset about this whole situation. And so he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this guy, or I'm going to have him killed, and I'm going to take over his clinic, and I'm going to use it to deal meth, because that'll show him. So he offered $100 worth of meth to anybody who would off this doctor to just get him out of the picture. And Wait, he, wait, wait. How much meth, and does the offer still stand? <laughs> And the doc, Dr. Smith was terrified. He heard about yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, because this guy was a huge deal. And he thought, well, I'm, I'm as good as dead. So he went to the authorities and he was like, this guy's going to, he put out a contract on my life. I'm going to die. And they were like, listen, we told you not to open the place to begin with. So I guess it's your problem. Bye. So no help, no help from the police. Nobody was willing to help him out. So he goes back to the clinic and he's like, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? A member of the Hell's Angels shows up. <laughs> and says, call our boss, Barger. Just give him a call, okay? And then leaves. Gives him a phone number. So he calls his phone number, and he says, hey, I'm Dr. David Smith. I was told to call you. And he's like, yeah, six words. Uh, we will take care of this. Hangs up. That's it. <laughs> so the next day, Papa Al gets a visit from two of Hell's Angels, and they're basically like, here's the deal. Dr. Smith is your insurance policy. If something happens to him, you're dead. So you better hope he's fine. And nobody ever touched him. <laughs> Which I think was just... For people... Stop. One sec. Just a moment. Sid, you can drink a bit more water if you like. 
For people listening to a medical history podcast in a museum, y'all are pretty stoked about the Hells Angels giving death threats to people. Like, you're like, you're like out of character jives about like, yeah, kill him. Kill that meth dealer. Hells Angels, yeah. I, I have no evidence. Hey, honey, did our deposit to NPR go through for this month? Good. Okay, yeah, anyway, kill those guys, yeah. Tear them apart. So as far as I know, they didn't kill him, but, you know, I mean, I, nobody ever knew what happened to him. They asked David Smith, like, what do you think happened to that guy? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> he never bothered me. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> so the clinic continued on. It struggled to make ends meet at times because it was, a, it was a free clinic and it took care of everybody and it was mainly, you know, run with donations. And so there was a point where it was going to have to shut down because it didn't have enough money to keep going. And the way that it stayed open is that it had really great ties with the local musical community, the local rock community. Uh, in particular, Janis Joplin was a client of the clinic and a huge contributor to the clinic and would help them out when they needed money or when, you know, when, when things were, when they thought they couldn't keep the doors open. In addition, the concert promoter, Bill Graham, was a close friend of the clinic. And so when they, really, when they really got into a position where they thought they couldn't keep the doors open anymore, he staged two huge concerts. And at these concerts, I mean, again, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane, huge bands played. They raised like $10,000. This is in 1968, you know, $10,000 to keep this clinic open. So these connections to all these, you know, big deal musicians and all the help they provided, all of these rock bands really helped keep the clinic open. And in return, in, by 1972, Graham had this close relationship with him, and he said, you know what? You know what would be a good idea? Because he was a huge promoter, right? He put on all these giant concerts. He said, what would be a really good idea is if we had, like, a medical tent at these concerts. We should have that because people come, and they, they don't drink enough water. They get dehydrated. They get sunburns. They fall, and they, like, break bones, and they get hurt. And then, you know, people are doing drugs and all that kind of stuff. We need somebody here to help them out. So in 1972, he asked the clinic, he said, will you provide some coverage, some medical coverage? We're doing some concerts for the Grateful Dead, for Led Zeppelin. Will you have like a tent where we can send sick people? And they said, sure, no problem. After that, this grew with the help of a, a Dr. George Gay, he went by Skip, and he said, let's create a whole organization that does this. This is a, this is a need. Events need doctors. So from that was born rock medicine, which is still a thing today. It was, you may have heard of it. It was born right here in San Francisco. And the idea was that at big concerts, at, you know, big, big outdoor events, you need somebody to help sick people. And you need somebody who's not going to be there to, like, cart you off to the ER right away, who's not going to be there to, like, let you sober up and then take you to jail. You just need people to help take care of you. Once you're okay, once you're stable, get you back to your friends and family, get you home safe. That's the whole idea of rock medicine, which still operates today. And, and they send volunteers to all kinds of huge events around here, like all the 49ers games and all the big concerts and everything. It's football. Good job, Justin. There's at least one person in here who's like, thank you. <laughs> which is super cool. It was all born out of this free clinic, this connection with this free clinic, and then Bill Graham, and this was the birth of rock medicine, which is still very alive and well today. 
which I personally think is very cool because when I was like 14, I saw a documentary about rock medicine on television and I saw this doctor taking care of somebody who was like crowd surfing and like fell, like broke their wrist or something. And I, was, I saw this doctor and he had a caduceus tattooed on his ankle. And I remember thinking, I wanna be that doctor. <laughs> that doctor is so cool. And I have that same tattoo now. <laughs> because, this is not a joke. It's because of that doctor who was volunteering for rock medicine that I saw in a documentary when I was 14. That's adorable. I just learned about this. Yeah, it's wonderful. I didn't know that's where it came from. I love you. Anyway, well, I love you too. You're just sweet. Okay, go ahead. Anyway. Back to the podcast. Where's Dr. Zoom? Bring him back. Uh, Bring him back. You complain a lot on our show that I have a bad habit of wanting to follow every person I talk about. Until they die, yes. Yes. It is known. I decided not to do that with Dr. Zoom. Oh, okay, I got you. So you think maybe he's mayor somewhere or something. He could be an astronaut. We don't know. He could have kicked. The habit. I think once you're a world-class <laughs> meth addict, you maybe he, don't. There's probably not a great... Let's not. Let's not. Well, he's fine. He's here today. He's fine. <laughs> he's not. He's let's not here today. Let's not dwell on Let's Dr. not dwell Zoom. on Dr. Zoom. I'm sure That's he's fine. That's not the point. Let's, let's talk about what happened to this clinic, this tiny little, you know, second floor clinic that was funded by donations, that was run by volunteers, that had lava lamps in the exam rooms, that the city council didn't want to happen, that the police didn't want to happen. Instead, it continued and it grew because more people volunteered and more people donated. And actually, it got a lot of support from the university. Eventually, I, I think a lot of that was actually due to Nancy Pelosi who was on the board at the university and was like, wanted to funnel a lot of, like, yeah, we'll support this. This is a really good idea. And so it got a lot of help at that point. And then after the Vietnam War, it started catering to a lot of veterans who were coming back and needed help. And it started, it started to get some like federal funding as a result of how much help it was giving to veterans. And so the, the clinic just continued to grow. And eventually it is now, it has been absorbed by what is called Health Right 360, it's part of that today. So it's still alive and well today in Health Rights 360. It mainly joined because as part of the Affordable Care Act, it had to do like electronic medical records and all that kind of stuff. And it's a lot easier, I can tell you this from experience, it's a lot easier to do that in a big organization than it is as like a private office. It's really expensive to do that stuff. So it is still alive and well today. And the spirit of the free clinic and the idea that healthcare should be available to everybody for free and that you don't need my personal opinions or judgment when you come for help, when you come for medical care, you just need help. That idea really, I mean, it, it set the country on fire and there you can find clinics like this all over the US today. I mean, we had a free clinic in our tiny little town in West Virginia. And I think this idea, the free clinic movement was really born of, of this. You can really trace its roots back to David Smith and the, this first free clinic, so. Congratulations, Thank San Francisco. You. you should be very proud. <laughs> it's also the home of uh, Sketchfest, which we're so happy to be a part of this year. It's so thrilling for us. 
Um, thank you for uh, having us, Sketchfest, wherever you are. <laughs> Uh, and uh, thanks to the Maximum Fun Network is having us as part of their extended podcasting family. Should you thank the... Thanks is, to the Did we jag- decide it's war. a Jaguar? Cheetah, whatever. Cheetah for allowing uh, us to... For to continue unabated without murdering us. Uh, <laughs> thanks to taxpayers for the use of our song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thanks to you for being here and listening thank to you. us. Appreciate it. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that is going to do it for us uh, for this week's episode of Sawbones. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.